Good evening and welcome to uh, the Gates Common Room. I'm reminded by that tinkle that now would be a good time to turn your cell phones off. Uh, if the White, White House operator needs to reach you, we'll find a way, Donna. Um, that's right, that was a different White House, wasn't it? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm delighted to have an opportunity to welcome you to uh, Gates Common Room at Colorado College this evening for uh, the Abbott Lecture. Uh, the W. Lewis and Helen R. Abbott Lecture Fund was established in honor of W. Lewis Abbott, a distinguished scholar, teacher, and social advocate. Professor of Economics and Sociology at Colorado College from 1920 until his death in 1949. Um, Professor Abbott's wife, Helen, was one of the founders and the first president of the League of Women Voters of Colorado. And tonight I am delighted that their daughter, Marjorie Abbott, is with us this evening. And Marjorie, would you please stand so that we can acknowledge you and the family? Thank you so much for being here. The Abbott Lecture has brought many distinguished speakers to our campus uh, each year, beginning with uh, Arthur Schlesinger, Jr. in 1958. So uh, next year we will celebrate the 50th anniversary of this lecture series. Tonight we're especially pleased to be able to uh, follow in this very distinguished uh, tradition by welcoming Donna Brazil, founder and managing director of Brazil and Associates, LLC, uh, to our campus. Um, she is the chair of the Democratic National Committee's Voting Rights Institute and an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. Since she sort of stepped sideways from the political arena, she spent a fair amount of time in academia. She was at the Kennedy School and uh, I think has also been at uh, perhaps George Washington University, and, and we're just pleased that we can introduce you to Colorado College tonight. Many of you know that she has uh, uh, served as a political advisor, uh, guru uh, in many national campaigns, um, including the Carter-Mondale campaign in 1976 and in 1980. Uh, she was actively involved in Reverend Jesse Jackson's first historic bid for the presidency in 1984, um, the Mondale-Ferraro campaign in 1984. In 1988, uh, she answered the call to her very good friend, from her very good friend, uh, Representative Dick Gephardt, and uh, then moved on to, uh, from his primary experience to the uh, Dukakis-Benson campaign in 1988 and, of course, played an instrumental role in the Clinton-Gore campaigns of 1992 and 1996. Um, as many of you know, uh, she was the senior strategist and campaign manager for the Gore Lieber for the victorious Gore Lieber Lieberman ticket of 2000. <laughs> yeah. If only we taught people in certain places how to count more accurately, it might have been different. 
but in that role, she was the first African-American to lead a major presidential campaign, basically start to finish. Um, following the election in, in 2004, she published a book titled Cooking with Grease. I, I know several people actually brought copies tonight. Stirring the Pots in American Politics. I think she was drawing on her roots in New Orleans when she conceived this uh, wonderful uh, recipe for American politics. Uh, she has many publications, awards, and professional achievements to her credit. Uh, I'm not going to begin to list them, but I want you to know that if, if I were in politics, I am no longer. And if I had any inkling that I might think about a national ambition, uh, the first person I would call would be down in Brazil. And I know I would get wise and candid advice, <laughs> even if I didn't want to hear it. <laughs> and that is the most precious currency in the political arena. I, no, this is by no means an announcement. Rather, it is an endorsement of our speaker, uh, who is very, very special. Uh, Donna Brazil is going to talk to us tonight about the lessons of 2000 and 2004 and the way forward. Please join me in welcoming Donna Brazil. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a great honor to be on this campus, and even more importantly, to be back out west. Um, I get to travel a great deal. In fact, in 2004, I traveled to 46 states, and I told my family that four more states, I would have been Miss USA without the bikini. <laughs> but it's good to return to Colorado, and of course, I'm excited to come this early to begin to mark my territory for next year when the convention comes here. Um, I'm excited about the convention coming out west, and of course I'm excited that the Democrats are finally capable and able of winning out west. So congratulations to you and your successful campaigns in the 2006 election when you sent, uh, of course, a Democrat to the State House and uh, we were able to pick up a congressional seat or two, and so we're looking forward to competing out west. And I'm, I'm very happy to be part of a long list of distinguished speakers for the Abbott series, and I hope I, I do you all proud. Um, many of you know that I got involved in politics at a very early age. When you grow up in the state of Louisiana, there are only two professions that you really uh, look forward to uh, going into it. and of course one being a cook, the other to, to uh, take care of all our many tourists and those who visit our wonderful state and the other of course is to go into public service and I decided to go into public service at the age of nine. You see most young people uh, decide, especially in Louisiana, that they, they want an early start and I got involved because we had a candidate running who promised a playground and I, some of you may think, why a playground? Well, it's hot down there. And we wanted some place to, to play inside. And of course, it rains a lot, and we have those nasty things called hurricanes from time to time. So we had a candidate to promise us a playground. 
And my mother said, well, we need roads. I said, well, we don't have a car. Um, but uh, we got involved. I went door to door encouraging people to register to vote. This was soon after the passage of the Voting Rights Act. And I tell you, we won. And I, I got my first uh, job in politics as a little coach by the time I was 11. So I've been involved ever since. And I, I'm totally excited about it. And the other night, I had an opportunity to go to Gridiron Dinner. And I don't know if you know anything about these special dinners in Washington, D.C., Governor. I'm sure you understand how important it is to be on that A-list to get invited. And for almost 20 years, I've been on the A-list. And so every year, I'm like, well, you know, especially under the Republicans, I figured, hell, I'm going to the C-list now, right? <laughs> but they invited me. And last year, I sat close to Dick Cheney. So every time he stood up, I ducked or just to make sure there was nothing <laughs> flying in the room. And uh, the other night, I was, uh, I was seated right below Mrs. Cheney, so I had an opportunity to talk to her on, uh, and, and to let her know what I was up to. So uh, I'm sure she's happy that I'm here at her alma mater, and I'll, I'll make sure I'll send a note that I left everything in one piece. <laughs> Uh, but it, it was a good weekend, and Ken Salazar was sitting across from me. The Denver Post uh, was the host, and I had an opportunity to uh, really spend them a little bit about the convention and what we hope to accomplish next year. So uh, I'm excited to be here. Now, let me just tell you, I know tonight there's a huge basketball game going on, and don't worry, LSU's not playing, we lost. Georgetown is not playing, we lost. Now, the Rutgers women's team will be playing uh, and I talked there as well, and I'm rooting for them, but I don't, I don't have a favorite, so whatever happens, happens, and we'll just leave it at that. But I, I want to talk a little bit about politics and what we've learned uh, over the past two political cycles since I've had a very interesting seat at the table. In fact, I've had one of the best seats in the House as a Democratic strategist, as a campaign manager, as a delegate, uh, as an activist, as an organizer, I've had one of the best seats in the House. I've seen my party win, and I've seen my party lose badly. I've seen the American people come together to vote for change, as they did in 1992, and I saw the American people stick with the status quo in 2004. One of the things I've learned in my almost 25, 30 years at the national level is that it's difficult to win elections when you don't have good quality candidates, and the candidate lacks the ability to connect with voters. And I saw that happen in 2000. We ran a good guy, Al Gore. In fact, I'm excited that he won the Oscar. Otherwise, we would have had to call for a recount. <laughs> we also had a good man in John Kerry. The problem, of course, is that when you look at the political landscape, Democrats, really did not expand the political landscape, the political terrain that should have given us the ability to win in both 2000 and 2004 was not as good as we thought it was. And the reason was simple. We don't compete in the South. We don't compete in many parts of the West. And we put all of our resources, all of our talent in a few states, states that we call battleground states. Now, here in Colorado, we lost just by a few percentage points. Bill Clinton carried the state in 1992. He lost it in 96. And I believe that this, this, this state is fertile for the Democrats. But until we invest resources and until we invest in political talent and until we begin to put our brand in this state, 
it's difficult for us to come out west and to compete for the nine electoral votes. In every political cycle, the Republican starts off with 274 electoral votes. 274. They start off with a winning hand. We start off with 248. There are three states, New Hampshire, Iowa, and Nevada, sometimes New Mexico, that are considered swing states where we compete for those 16 electoral votes. So unless we're able to compete in Ohio, Florida, perhaps turn some of the mountain states like Colorado, New Mexico, Blue, we start off at a disadvantage in 2008. And I'll talk a little bit more about 2008 in a minute. But for now, our party, my party, the Democrats, are in a good mood. We should be. We have plenty to cheer about. But I'm not prepared to break out the champagne. First, we're excited because history is on our side. Only three times in American history has one political party held the White House for more than two terms. That's good news. Secondly, this is the first contest since 1952 when a sitting president or vice president was not seeking re-election. It's also good news. But we must be careful. We must be careful because the landscape, while it favors us on the issues, does not favor us when it comes to pulling together the votes needed to win the electoral college. It's not unusual for the candidates to be out there campaigning this early. People are complaining, mainly the journalists who often want to sit home, watch TV and watch the bloggers. But people are complaining about the early start. I go back and look at my calendar from the last six cycles. We've always started early. And the reason why you start early is simple. You want to go out there and you want to find the raw talent needed to win. You also want to begin to raise huge sums of money. Back in 2000, our goal was to raise $8 million. We raised $8.9 million. Can you imagine being on Hillary Clinton's staff or Mitt Romney's staff when the goal was $20 million plus? I just don't know where to find $20 million in one quarter. And yet they're on their way to raising $100 million. You also must run early to security endorsements. The days, the days of riding in on a dark horse, a pony, a donkey are simply over. You have to get out there early to compete for votes and to secure the money that you need in order to get your message out. This election season is also interesting because for the first time, the diversity of our country is now reflected in the pool of candidates. And there's a lot of star power in this current lineup. Now, they're attracting huge crowds, but we don't know if they're really expanding the, the electorate. It's tough for an outsider, an insurgent, to break through at this point, given the level of experience of the front runners and the amount of money and resources that they will have to compete. Senator Obama is still counting his money, so we don't know if he's been able to break the $20 million mark. He may have broken the $30 million mark. But today, the candidates, especially those top-tier candidates, must remain fresh, attracted to voters, because their record, their temperament, their character are all being measured at this beginning stage of the campaign. Carl Rove, who I know quite well, I saw him dance last week at another event. Just, just I sent him an email saying that if I'll offer him free dance lessons if, <laughs> if he resigns. I'll retire, but I haven't heard back from him. But Carl Rove once said, 
voters have three basic questions about a candidate. And this is different from where I started. I started in the politics where you really have issues, that candidates have a platform, they have an agenda. I'm sure when you ran for governor, you had a platform, you had an agenda, you had position papers, you had a plan. You're able to go to different, you know, communities and lay out your vision. But Karl Rove said that there are three basic questions that candidates must answer in the affirmative. One, are you a strong leader? Two, can you be trusted? Three, do you care about people, ordinary people like me? Of course, every politician would like to think of himself or herself as a strong leader. Of course, every politician would like to believe that they can be trusted with power and trusted to do what's right for the American people. And if, yes, every politician wants you to know that they care about you, even if they don't know your name. But let us not forget another, another element that has surfaced, especially in the last two presidential cycles, and that is the attack game. The Republicans, and I tell you this as somebody who's watched them up close, they have learned the art of division. They have learned how to distort records, especially their opponent's record. And they've learned how to disenfranchise huge segments of the American population. Now, don't take this as a partisan speaking. This is someone who's observed it on the ground. I was there in Florida on the day of the election in 2000. I heard from voters who went to vote only to learn that they had been selectively purged right before Election Day. My own sister, who resides in Seminole County, called and said, how many, how many IDs do I need to vote? I said, one. She said, I had to produce not one, my voter registration card, not two, my driver's license, but three forms of ID. Luckily, she had an electric bill in her purse that established her residency because she had been selectively purged. We know that in order to win these days, the opposition must paint their opponent as flawed, weak, untrustworthy, indecisive. This has hurt the Democrats' ability to command center stage and to get their message out. Despite all of the position papers, Al Gore did a wonderful job in 2000 of outlining his beliefs, outlining his plan for global warming. Did anyone hear it? No. Because the next day the media said, why is he talking about the environment when gas prices are stable? Now, most people blamed it on the campaign that we didn't do an effective job on discussing Gore's passion for the environment or his strong position on global warming, even back in 2000. We look upon it, those of us who were in the room, and say, we did. We did our job. We got our message out. We talked about politics and global warming and health care and education. But it wasn't enough because voters, what they heard was that Al Gore was a serial exaggerator, couldn't be trusted, and worse, Al Gore was weak. Same happened to John Kerry. Now, Gore was seen as the heir apparent to Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton helped us clear the field. I like that. 
I'm sure he's trying to help someone else clear the field now. It's a little difficult, but it can happen. Though wounded by scandals, Bill Clinton still maintained strong support within the party, especially with activists and donors. We needed Bill Clinton to help us clear the field and to establish Al Gore as a frontrunner. Gore was seen early on by certain people in the media as stiff, policy wonkish, uneasy with crowds, uneasy in making connections. In fact, inside the campaign, we often said that if we wanted to close the deal, we'd go get Tipper. She understood how to close the deal. The election to us was not about the past, it was about the future. We knew that we had to draw upon Al Gore's strength in order to get past the finish line. We also knew that we had to utilize what was given to us in terms of the Clinton-Gore record. After all, this was an era of peace and prosperity, record prosperity. We had a surplus. We made a strategic decision to stick to the center and not campaign as a left candidate or candidate to the right because we wanted to keep independence in play. And by the way, independents are the largest group of American voters, not Democrats, not Republicans. We like to delude ourselves that we are somehow the majority party. We're not. There is no such thing. There are two major minority parties and one large independent group of voters. The public agreed with us on every single issue. Every single issue. It was weird going into focus groups and, and, and dial sessions and looking at polls. They agree with us on everything. And you all know the results. George Bush was able to campaign by basically saying that he would restore honor and integrity to the White House. He did not lay out any policy details, go back and look at the record. Instead, when we laid out details, he just laughed it off, saying that's just Washington speak. Look at the debates. When Al Gore questioned George Bush's ability to secure our retirement, the vice, the vice president got into an argument. He called it the lockbox. The president, now the president, the governor then, called it fuzzy math, and no one challenged him. 2004 was supposed to be another year where Democrats would recapture the White House. We set it up as a referendum on President Bush. Instead, it turned out to be all about John Kerry. The Republicans maintained two lines of attack that we never fought against. One was Kerry was an elitist. Second, Kerry was a flip-flopper. Now, Kerry gave them a gift when he said, I voted for the $87 billion before I voted against $87 billion, trying to explain what how often happened in Washington, D.C., which, by the way, I would never explain to anybody without having something to drink. Kool-Aid, of course. As President Bush at the time stated, you may not always agree with me, but you know where I stand. And he was able to connect with a vast majority of, of the American people. There's a great hunger in this electoral season, not just for new politics, but a new breed of public servants who are willing to rise above the politics of the past. That's the politics of the attack, 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 divide, distort, and disenfranchise. Voters today seem to be more interested in 
figuring out where a candidate will stand on issues that they consider to be important, kitchen table issues, the economy, health care. They also want to know precisely how we will get out of Iraq. They're not looking for glib sound bites. In fact, they're not looking for spin. This will be a great departure from the past electoral seasons. The one thing I know that's important for both political parties is that they began to speak to voters about those values that make us America, America, a country that after 9-11 was ready to stand together. All of the polls suggest in this political season that voters are ripe to vote for change and not just vote because of someone's great name recognition, but they're looking for someone who is decisive, tough, yet caring, someone who has values that would enshrine in American, especially in, in American young people, a sense of community, a sense of being one country. They're also looking past this president and this White House, even the Republican voters, who seem now to want George Bush to leave much quicker than even the Democrats. The Republicans will also start off this electoral season, and I'm only speaking because we have Republicans and Democrats in the audience. I'm not giving my usual Democratic stump speech, although it's in me, trust me. <laughs> All you have to do is ask the right question, it'll come out. The Republicans will have plenty of money, plenty of support, but of course without the Christian evangelicals who have given them an edge in the last political cycles. They will have a hard time bringing back the country. Why? They've lost their support among independents. Independents no longer trust the Republicans on the issues, and independents don't no longer trust Republicans to keep them safe and secure. In order for the Republicans to regain the majority, not just on Capitol Hill, because that's up for grabs, but also in order for the Republicans to regain the White House, they must find a way back toward the middle and to grab independence. That's the key for their electoral future. Of course, they will continue to be a dominant party in the South because the Democrats just haven't put enough resources or talent in the South. I'm proud that my home state of Louisiana is partly blue despite the loss of population. But without an effective campaign there this year when we have a gubernatorial race, we don't know what could happen in that state given the fact that we have a senatorial election. Florida, Florida, although we like to think of it in, in Florida in play, just imagine if Rudy Giuliani is the nominee. He will be very competitive, not just in Florida, but also in California and perhaps in the Northeast. So Democrats cannot overly rely on those states. Again, the Republicans will try to secure and lock up the mountain plain states and then compete with Democrats for the votes in the Midwest. Enough, I believe, to maintain their electoral advantage unless Democrats do something different in 2008. Ultimately, we need more than just money. We need candidates who know who they are and can go out there and compete for votes without taking a focus group or taking another poll to figure out where they stand. 
just recently when General Pace announced that homosexuality was immoral, it took most of our candidates 72 hours to figure out their position. And yet, on the Republican side, Senator John Warner, the former chair of the Armed Services Committee, came out the same day and said he respectfully but strongly disagreed. Again, that's a sign that we're taking polls before we're given our opinions, and that could hurt Democrats because voters want to know what's in their heart, not what their strategists are telling them. We've learned, both political parties, how to get out our votes. We now know how to micro-target just about every segment of the American community based on your preference for cars or what you watch at night on TV. We also know based on whether or not you go to church or not go to church, whether or not you will tend to vote Democratic or Republican. We know a lot more about you than you think. But yet in a close election, the only thing that is guaranteed to turn out votes is a candidate that has a personality, a record, and willing to take tough stands on very important issues. In order to win future elections at the presidential, congressional, and state levels, Democrats and progressives must do more than tune up or turn out voters. They really need to find the music, get a message that resonates with ordinary people, and go back to the old coalition of blue-collar, ethnic minorities, women, that helped us gain power right after the Great Depression. One thing I've learned is that we cannot adopt the Lee Atwater, Karl Rove style of politics to win elections. There's just not enough voters out there that will listen to Democrats distort another candidate's record or enough voters out there that, is, that are hungry for Democrats to go out there and split the difference without exactly telling the American people where we stand. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the congressional uh, landscape because that's interesting. Last year, the Republicans were fired, but the voters didn't hire Democrats. And this is a very interesting period for Democrats. Our margin of victory is slim. 77,000 votes and the Republicans would remain in charge of Washington, D.C. On the other hand, 78,000 more votes in another direction, we would have picked up 18 more seats. So the, the Congress is up for grabs in 2008. While Harry Reid enjoys just two votes, and on a given day we don't know if Lieberman is a Democrat or a Republican, <laughs> and I love him when he's a Democrat. <laughs> Democrats must pick up seats next year. One of the seats that we'll be looking at is here in Colorado, what is a retirement. We know the Republicans have a primary I believe three candidates are competing for that nomination. There's only one Democrat, and we're throwing everything in the kitchen sink behind Mr. Udall. This is a very important seat for the Democrats in 2008. Likewise, there's a seat in South Dakota that we're focused on. We want Tim Johnson to return to Washington. And by the way, he's doing very well. He's recuperating fine. He's communicating with his family and his staff. And he's anxious to get back to work, and I'm so happy to report that. My home state Senator Mary Landrew is going to have a tough battle because we have lost population in the state. Most of our people are still scattered all across the country. 
And Mary understands that, and she knows that in order to win back her seat, she will have to find a way to, com- to communicate with the more than 50,000 Louisianians who are still basically scattered all throughout the South, and in some places, some of them have moved out west. So Mary will have a tough time. The Republicans, on the other hand, must defend more seats in 2008, more gubernatorial seats as well as more senatorial seats. So expect a great deal of focus, not just on the presidential, but also on the congressional races. Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, who is now traveling in the Middle East, drawing the ire of the president. I love, I love it when the two of them fight. It makes me happy. Yeah, well, when she said the other day, Mr. President, calm down, I was... And later that night, they were on the same stage, and the president said that he wasn't afraid of tough women, strong women, you know, opinionated women. He said, after all, my mother's all of that, and Pelosi just smiled. (laughs) But Nancy Pelosi must pull together a very diverse caucus. People often assume that we Democrats come in one size and one size fit all. That's not true. The out-of-Iraq caucus is a very powerful caucus, 73 members and growing. The Congressional Black Caucus, 42 members and growing. The Congressional Hispanic Caucus, 22 members and growing. They are very powerful. The Blue Dog Caucus. I've elected a... Look, I, I went out... I'm a blue dog on some days when I'm in some states where I have to be a blue dog. Most days I'm not a dog. (laughs) But I respect those blue dogs. I respect the fact that on economic issues, economic issues, they agree with Democrats. On social issues, they agree with Democrats. We have a difference of opinion sometime on the war on national security and foreign policies. We have to find common ground with the blue dogs. Can you imagine sitting in a room with the Yellow dogs, the blue dogs, the black caucus, the Hispanic caucus, and the out of Iraq caucus. I mean, there's nothing you can put on the table that would make everybody happy. That's like inviting Cajuns to come to a Creole mill. We just won't do it. And yet Pelosi has managed to keep the caucus together, and that's a tough job. The first 100 days you saw the party go out there and pass important pieces of legislation. Minimum wage, lowering the prices of prescription drugs, advancing federal research for stem cells. And where where are those pieces of legislation? Well, they're trying to make their way through the Senate. They're trying to get through that process that requires 60 votes, not a majority. So Democrats will have to go out there and convince the American people that we've accomplished something, that we've done something. And the number one issue, the number one issue for Democrats is figuring out a way to get out of Iraq. That was the message, along with get things done and work together and try to do things in a bipartisan way. If you look back at all of those votes I mentioned earlier, minimum wage, prescription drugs, 9-11, Democrats were able to recruit upwards of 60 Republicans to support us. So this was not, you know, Nancy Pelosi and her band of Democrats shoving us down the Republicans' throat. They actually convene sessions to bring in some of the moderate Republicans, who, by the way, were shut out during the Republican era. 
And they often embrace the Democratic proposals, especially on those kitchen table issues. And they gave us winning margins, veto-proof margins. But if only we could get it through the Senate. The Senate is, I'm going to say this because Al Gore is in Arizona, so if I get stuck here, he'll come and get me. <laughs> Last week, Jim Anahoff from Oklahoma put a hole on a bill that would allow the, vice, the former vice president of the United States who served our country. He has put in a request to hold a rally on the steps of the Capitol. Now, we've had, we've had all sorts of rallies at the steps of the Capitol. We've seen everybody. We've seen the anti-war protesters. We've seen the March for Life protesters. We've seen peace demonstrators. We've, we've seen just about everybody. But on this one issue that impacts everybody, global warming, this one senator has put a hold. And now Al Gore is looking for other venues on the East Coast to hold a concert that will be held on all seven continents, in London, in Johannesburg, even in Antarctic. I want to go cover that one. <laughs> I want to meet the polar bears before they're no longer polar bears anymore. He's convinced me. You didn't have to convince me. Hurricane Katrina convinced me something has gone wrong in our world. Trust me on that one. So the Democrats will have to figure out how to bring more Republicans into, into our rooms where we negotiate bills. Charlie Ringel is already working on something with the Republicans on Social Security reforms. There are other members of Congress who are trying to figure out if there are issues that we can find common ground. But we know that when it comes to 2008, the Republicans and the Democrats will both have to go to the voters with their records. And let me talk a little bit about the crop of candidates now running for the presidency. First off, I am neutral. I'm flirting. I'm dating. But I have no intentions of falling in love unless Mr. Celeste runs. He's convinced me tonight that I should hold my heart out for him. If he runs for something nationally, I will hold it out, sir, no problem. This is an interesting political season. Some people have called it the race on steroids. And it is on steroids, I must tell you. I am so glad that I am going to wait until the nominee is selected before I come out and say, yay. Because it is tough out there. I mean, my friends who are out in Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina, they're emailing me saying, how can I pace myself? I'm already feeling burnt out. And I worry about them. I mean, they hit the ground running in January. And they are competing. I mean, they're calling up and they're trying to get their ones, their twos, and their threes locked down before July 4th. Can you imagine being in love that long? That's a long time to hold some passion for a candidate. I'm, I'm, I did a lot for Al Gore, but pacing yourself is difficult, especially in a campaign like this one. When you're out there competing, drawing huge crowds. I've never seen the crowds like I've seen Barack Obama, 20,000 people in Austin, Texas. I'm like, what did he do? Did he have a halo or what? 
Hillary Clinton last week in New Hampshire, 5,000 people. We were lucky in 2000 that 50 people came to a diner, and we often paid for the food. And they're attracting these people early in the process. We also know that many states, and I hope Colorado is not one of them, many states are rushing ahead of the calendar to get their moment in the so-called sunlight. Arnold's our governor, governor out in California, just moved California. There's talk now New York is going to move. New Jersey, Mrs. Clinton received an endorsement today from the governor. I'm sure she said, thank you for the endorsement. Move your state. <laughs> Florida. I mean, by February 5th, which, by the way, is Mardi Gras, for those of you who celebrate. February 5th, we'll, we'll know our nominee sometime before the end of the day. We'll know exactly who the nominee on both sides of the aisle. So this race is off to a very, very fast start. If you're a second-tier candidate, and there are a lot of second-tier candidates, Joe Biden, my favorite, hey, come on. He called me articulate, smart, black, and everything else. Black is beautiful. <laughs> I mean, I, I love that man. Come on. Chris Dodd, who if... I like Chris Dodd. I mean, I, I, think, I think Chris Dodd is, is 100% there in terms of good, strong, leader, decisive, someone you can trust, someone who shares your values. But with less than $5 million in the bank, I don't know how far he will go unless one of the top-tier candidates stumble. Dennis Kucinich, as Al Sharpton said yesterday on TV, I agree with every position that Dennis Kucinich has ever taken. I just don't see him becoming president. But clearly, as a progressive liberal Democrat, I share his values and his concern about the war and many other issues. Of course, there's Bill Richardson, who raised $6 million. Some people consider him as good vice presidential material. Don't, I don't think so. I think he's good presidential material. He's off to North Korea next week, and who knows what's going to happen when Bill Richardson comes back. This man has brought back hostages. He has solved crises in Jafar. He knows how to negotiate. He knows how to be a tough leader. We shouldn't rule him out. John Edwards, who, by the way, his numbers since the announcement of Elizabeth, the recurrence of Elizabeth Edwards' cancer, his numbers have gone up, his poll numbers, his fundraising numbers. I know both John and Elizabeth Edwards, and I know that they would not be running if if they didn't really sincerely believe that this was in the best interest of our country as well as their family. They're good people, and I know that they are going to run a very credible campaign. He announced his campaign from New Orleans, so I'm a little biased. He announced it from the Ninth Ward, and that mattered. I mean, for me and many other Gulf Coast residents, it mattered a great deal that he announced, speaking about poverty. We often forget that one out of three kids in this country, one out of three, are born in poverty. We have so many poor kids, poor families, 37 million of our fellow citizens. We need to do something about it. We shouldn't just talk about it. This is a rich country, $2.9 trillion budget. If we can afford to invest $1.8 billion in Mars, then let's put that in these neighborhoods so that we can ensure no child is left behind. Every child starts off with a head start in life, including health insurance. And that's why John Edwards should be given a chance to go out there and talk about these issues and debate. Now, on the Republican side, I have to admit, I rarely look at Republican candidates, although I looked at Mitt Romney the other day because he was sitting right next to <laughs> and he looks good on the eyes. 
look, if he decided to get more than one wife, who knows? <laughs> He's the only one eligible, yet he hasn't done it. <laughs> Talking about wives, I have to tell you all, when they're, when, you know, I go on CNN, they give you a topic about an hour or two before the show, and one topic last week was uh, Rudy Giuliani's wife admits to having three husbands. I'm like, but he's had three wives, three husbands. Okay, maybe the third time's a charm. I don't really care, personally. But you know what alarmed me was the first wife. He married a second cousin. Now, what side of the aisle did the family sit on? I had questions about that, but of course we couldn't get to it. And what about New Gendrich having an affair? What's wrong with a little hanky-panky when you're on the floor denouncing somebody else's hanky-panky? And the hanky-panky's on the government payroll, the other hanky-panky on the I'm like, come on, you know, two wrongs don't make it right. But they said, well, he confessed. I said, he was just clearing the deck to run for president. That was not a true Catholic confession. <laughs> I mean, he confessed to James Dobson. Come to one of us Catholics. We'll give you some confession. <laughs> he would still be doing penance if he came to me. Some of y'all might know about us Southern girls. We just cook up some grits. Yes, indeed. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. What did you do, honey? Mm-hmm. You want some breakfast? I'm cooking grits. How you like it? On the head, on the... Yes, indeed. All right, John McCain. John McCain. The Maverick in 2000. The guy who thought that he could actually win by being honest, straight talk express, beat George Bush in New Hampshire. Then the Bush campaign came back and said, don't worry, be happy. Actually, he did. The president was optimistic. Call Rove. I asked to call. I said, call. You guys lost. And then you came out the next day and gave a victory speech. How did you do that? He said, because we knew we would beat him down in South Carolina. And how did they do it? First of all, they put out rumors. Now, of course, they didn't do it, because we never know. We never know. But they put out rumors that his wife was mentally unstable, and so was John McCain, and that he had fathered a biracial child in South Carolina, Heart of Dixie. I mean, John McCain went from 40% and just plunged. This year, John McCain's out there. He raised $12.5 million. He's disappointed in his fundraising total. And he's in Iraq saying that things are going well. He's trying to figure out a way to get his groove back. Now, the problem is, is that you can't get your groove back if you're standing too close to the president. Because the president's numbers are bad. Not just in terms of Republicans, but as I mentioned, independents. So how does McCain break away from Bush, reestablish his own, you know, credentials, and return to the straight talking express? That's tough. I don't know what the secret is. All I know is that John McCain right now is a front runner, but a, a front runner in, in huge amount of danger. If you're a McCain supporter, redouble your effort because it will take a great deal to get him back on top. Now, I also have to mention that there are some other interesting Republican candidates that I, I like looking at. Governor Huckabee of Arkansas, he raised a half a million dollars. Now, I know Arkansas is not a big state, but a half a million dollars, I mean, I, I could raise that. I still believe that he's more interested in counting calories than votes. 
ever since he dropped 150 pounds. You know when a politician dropped weight, get out of the way. You know, something's going on. <laughs> a governor, uh, Governor Celeste, I'm talking about all your governors, all your former colleagues, and there's Tommy Thompson from Wisconsin, you know, Mr. Welfare Reform, he announced today he's running. I don't know why, but maybe he has a prescription drug plan since the last one didn't work well, so maybe that's the reason. <laughs> Jim Gilmore, who was a failure as a governor in Virginia, I can speak about that personally because I live in the District of Columbia, was a failure as chairman of the RNC, is running. I don't know why, but he's running. Uh, my favorite, of course, my other favorite is uh, Fred Thompson, who's played every role on TV, but God, because Charleston Heston had that role, and, uh, well, Moses, uh, but there, there are indications that he will run, and I do believe that Fred Thompson, if he runs, will be able to not just generate the resources needed, but also because he's seen as someone in the Ronald Reagan mode, he may pick up some of the uh, support that would otherwise have gone to uh, John McCain. There are other Republican candidates, of course, uh, Tom Tancredo, since I'm in Colorado. It's okay. I sat next to him, too. You know, when you go to those dinners, you put on a fancy dress, and you never know who you're going to sit next to. <laughs> and I almost, I almost called CNN and said, what are you trying to do with me? You put me next to Tom Tancredo. <laughs> talk about small talk. <laughs> I mean, I was grabbing spinach. <laughs> Give me some more spinach, please. I'll have more spinach, please. If one more illegal come across it, but what are you going to do? God, I got my, I called Baby Cannon the next day. Baby Cannon has uh, resigned from CNN temporarily to go run his campaign. And I said, Bay, you all need another issue. I mean, that man wore me out. Can you find another issue? What about education? I mean, there must be something else out here in Colorado. Before I leave this state, you all give me an issue. I'm going to help him out. He needs another issue. He needs another issue should not run as a one-issue candidate. Then you have Ron Paul. I don't know anything about him, so I won't say nothing good or bad. Uh, he's a Republican. I think he's from Texas. He's running. And then there's Duncan Hunter, the former chair of the Armed Services Committee. There are plenty of Republicans to choose from. All your different variety of Republicans, your country club Republicans, your border security guard Republicans, your active variety Republican, your mean as hell Republican. I won't take it anymore. And then, of course, Giuliani, who actually has a Democratic record type of Republican, because he supported, you know, abortion before he ran, he supported immigration reform, and he supported gay rights. All of that yesterday. Today, he's a different man. 9-11 changed him. Hillary. Can anybody be Hillary Clinton? Now, if this was a parliamentarian form of government, we would already have a female head of state, Nancy Pelosi. Speaker of the House. So with this question of will she, can she, we would have answered the question. She is tough. She's going to be very tough to be. Um, she's attractive in terms of her ability to bridge some of the, the divides in the country. She's energizing. She's attracting independent women right now, not independent men. Independent men are with Obama. She's strong in the Northwest and the Midwest. She has great credentials. Her poll numbers also, the Gallup poll that just came out, she's also strong out in the West. Obama is right there on, you know, in terms of her biggest competitor is Barack Obama. 
He has strong poll numbers. He's polling well in the South, polling well in the West. In fact, he's polling better in the West than any of the other Democratic candidates. Um, so she has to uh, pay attention to uh, Barack Obama. But everybody seemed to be resigned to the fact that she will be the front runner. And unless she stumbles, she's the person to beat. And we'll see what happens. Now, I'm trying to think if I'm, 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 I'm Joe Biden, I, I talked about died. You know, you have to give everybody due, you know, because somebody might email me tomorrow and block me and say, I didn't say any nice things about Kucinich. But let me also say this about Dennis Kucinich. In 2004, when he ran, he was a single man. He's married. So my guess is that he's running this time to have children. But we'll see. Um, let, me, let me close because you all have a lot of questions. The one thing I've also learned about politics, especially at the national level, is that we have to fix our system of democracy. I'm sick and tired of these elections with hanging chairs, swinging chairs, pregnant chairs, with voters unable to get to the ballot box because someone sends out disinformation or misinformation. I'm sick and tired, and you saw what happened in your great state of Ohio, people standing in line up to 10 hours to vote malfunctioning vote machines in a country that should have the best technology. We have to fix what ails us at the ballot box. We need machines that count. We need machines with a paper ballot. We need to ensure that no American citizen is turned away from the ballot box. I will hope that 2008 would be the best election when it comes to cleaning up our electoral mess. But there's no evidence that that will happen, given the partisan divide and the fact that we are still not investing in the type of technology that will ensure that we can count the votes, as well as train poll workers, and ensure that both political parties are able to put people, professional people, at the polling stations to help voters navigate the political process and not stop people from voting. I'm also concerned about the role that money might play in this election. I mean, $100 million is a lot of money. We got by with $44 million in 2000. What happens with $100 million is that that money is not going to be spread to educate voters about the issues and bring people together. That's going to be used to attack, attack, attack. And it will pay for an awful lot of consultants to come up with 30-second spots. And in addition to the money that the candidates raise, of course, there will be money raised by the 527 uh, candidates. A lot has ch changed in the last eight years. The way in which we conduct campaigns, the blog has become a huge marketplace of ideas. Bloggers are just like journalists in terms of being able to pitch stories and, and get information out there to voters. Um, technology has changed the way that we communicate with voters, that how we target voters, and of course the candidates themselves must be prepared, be prepared for a very grueling, grueling political season because this season is long and it will be hard. I don't have any regrets for being involved in politics or campaigns. Uh, the only regret that I, I've ever um, thought about was the fact that I just couldn't get enough votes to get Al Gore in the White House. I wish that all the votes had been counted in Florida and that one Supreme Court, and that one vote in the Supreme Court, I wish 
it would not have gone to the other guy, instead gone to a man who I believe was best prepared to lead our nation during these challenging times. So with that, I'll take your questions, your comments, and if you have any recipes, I'll include it in my next book. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.